So Money Episode 805, Joanne Lipman, author of That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I was a 22-year-old Wall Street Journal reporter. One of my first stories, I went to go interview a businessman. He locked the door and of his office and took off his clothes and stripped oh to his underwear. God. I promise this episode does have something to do with money, a lot, in fact. My guest today is Joanne Lipman, author of That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. You're listening to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Joanne began her career as a Wall Street Journal intern, you heard a story there, and spent 20 years working there as a journalist. She's also a former editor-in-chief of USA Today. Her book is about workplace equality, and for the first time, it is a book that encourages men to become an integral part of the conversation instead of ostracizing them or blaming them for the problems that we have today. We'll talk about the genesis for this book. It happened on an airplane. Easy, low-hanging fruit solutions, how we can improve gender equality in the workplace, being raised by Depression-era parents, and hustling it in her early 20s as a journalist in New York City. I could relate. Here is Joanne Lipman. Joanne Lipman, welcome to So Money. Well, thank you for having me, Farnoosh. I'm glad to be here. I want to talk all about your new book. Well, it's not super new. It came out earlier this year, but it's still a conversation that I think uh, we're, we're constantly having and um, we're so happy that you're leading it. The book is called That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and in parentheses, Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. This is an important book and it's timely. And I understand that it came out or rather it was inspired by a plane ride. You were <laughs> seated next to somebody who was very inspirational to you. Tell us about yes. it. Yes. Yeah. So the book, actually, I've been working on it for more than three years, and it has only become more and more timely as time has gone on. In fact, you know, this started long before the Me Too movement. Um, and I was, uh, it was inspired. In fact, I was on a plane. I was going to Des Moines, Iowa. And I found myself sitting next to a businessman who we started this like really lovely conversation as one does on a plane, um, talking about, you know, he had a new house in the suburbs and he was telling me about his kids and their sports teams. And then he says to me, so tell me, why are you going to Des Moines? And I said, I'm going to speak at a women's leadership conference. And all of a sudden this otherwise lovely man just kind of freezes and finally just like throws his hands in the air and he goes, sorry, I'm a man. And proceeds uh. to tell me that at work at his bank, he had just gone through diversity training and it was the worst thing ever. And it was like being beaten up and sat in the corner and, and it was so frustrating to him. And he, um, uh, he said he, he and his fellow bankers, um, who were all men, came away from this training with one message that they took away from it, and that was, it's all your fault. 
And I thought to myself, okay, that is really a shame because we really need men on our side working together to close the gap. And instead, these guys are feeling alienated. So I found myself the next day, I was giving a speech at this women's leadership conference, and I'm looking out in a hotel ballroom at a sea of all female heads nodding in recognition as we discuss the issues we face at work. And, uh, and I just stopped in the middle of a sentence and I said, you know what? We already know this. We need men in the room to hear this as well. And, and that led to writing a piece that ran in the Wall Street Journal. It was headlined, Women at Work, a Guide for Men, that went viral. And that, in turn, um, led to the book, That's What She Said. Hmm. And what has been the male reception to the book and also this overall idea that we want you to be included in the conversation? Are men interested in this conversation? Yeah. So the, the, on the bright side, okay. So we've seen a lot of action since Me Too, the Me Too movement started. So it's been a year uh, since the Harvey Weinstein allegations came out. And that really touched off a lot of soul searching um, among a lot of men, not all, but a lot among a lot of men and, and a lot of organizations that are saying, you know, we, we really haven't paid that much attention to this. And what I, the message that I bring in, that's what she said is, the, the sexual assault and, and, and abuse that we're hearing about that's in the headlines, that's the tip of an iceberg of a culture that allows that kind of behavior. But the culture is really what we need to change. And what I mean by that is women talk all the time with one another about these issues we face on a regular daily basis. And things like being marginalized, interrupted, um, not taken seriously at work, not taken as seriously as a guy sitting right next to us, in addition to issues of pay inequity and promotion inequity. There are things that are just happening to us a hundred times a day. And it's, it's woven into the culture. And those are the issues that we really need to focus on. We need an entire cultural overhaul and a lot more organizations and a lot more leaders of organizations are understanding that. So the, the embrace by men has been, um, really, really gratifying. And I have to tell you, when I first wrote the piece, um, there were a number of publishers that were interested in the book. Um, but one of them I went in to visit and there was a man, um, uh, one of the leaders of the publishing house. And he said to me, you know, no man will ever read this book. And that was like three years ago. So obviously I chose a different publisher, but, yeah. um, but, but what's interesting is how wrong he was. I mean, I now find that I increasingly am being invited in to speak at very male dominated organizations. They're doing book groups around it. Um, I've noticed even in the mail I get from readers, um, even as time has gone on. So the book came out, um, in the late January, January 30th. And so, in that time, things have only accelerated. You, you expect with a book to get a little pop and then things <laughs> fizzle. But, but instead, we're like a rolling stone that's gathering, you know, as it goes, it's getting the, the, it, the, the embrace, the movement is really increasing. But where I'm really seeing the increase is among men. And I think that's a very encouraging sign. And frankly, in hindsight, that one publisher, that male publisher's reaction, which was that no one, no man is going to read this. Honestly, that's good because that tells you that your thesis 
is complex, that there are going to be multiple takes to it. And ultimately, uh, your thesis is prevailing, but it's kind of good that it's striking a debate and conversation, right? It is. It is. Now, to be fair, to be clear, right, the men who are coming to this are men who were leaning in this direction anyway. I do think we still have an issue with um, there is a minority but still sizable cohort of men who re- who are really bristling at the Me Too movement, who are, you know, we saw this come out during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings um, that, you know, there there's still a ways to go. There's a long ways to go. But what, I, what I'm seeing, and frankly, in particular since those hearings, is there, there's, it's mobilizing that vast majority of men who are in the middle. And, and but I, what I mean by that is there's a certain percentage, 10 or 20% of men who are all in on this already on the idea of gender equality. And there's a certain percentage of men, 10 or 20% who are just never going to be converted, right? They're just troglodytes, right? But there's, there's the vast majority of men actually fall in the middle. They're good guys who, you know, just never either, either they didn't think about this or they thought it was like somebody else's issue, or they just thought of it as a girl issue, like a a female thing. And now there's this increasing understanding that it's not a female thing. It's an all of us thing. It's a, it's a human issue, the gender gap, not a, not a gender specific issue. Right. And back to your point about how this is going to be a huge multi-pronged effort. It's going to take years, but what is the low hanging fruit as far as what companies can begin to do? I would say one is let's reach pay equity. And that can't be that hard if you just make everything transparent and just call it a day. A hundred percent. I've written about this, actually. I wrote an op-ed a couple of years ago in the Times while I was researching the book, um, calling for transparency, more pay transparency. The In the UK, the uh, there's a, a new rule that was passed, a law was passed that went into effect this year. Companies have to report their gender wage gap. And you can guess how many companies pay women more than they pay men. All of them. Um, the ones that pay women more would be zero. Yes. So all of them pay men more. So, um, uh, I would like to see that in the U S and there are companies that are doing it voluntarily. Salesforce is the most prominent. It's done for three years. It's done these annual wage gap analyses and, um, every year has had to pay several million dollars to correct, um, to correct the inequities. And so, um, so it's a really, really important uh, way in which with that transparency, I think that's a great thing. I, I also think among individuals, we are fortunate that we live in a world with a lot of data. And so um, women have, have had a hard time in, in demanding to be paid what we are worth because we don't always know what people around us are making. But because of salary.com and glassdoor.com and various other data-centric kinds of organizations, we have a better sense of what others make. And I do find that um, particularly, uh, particularly with younger um, folks that those in the millennials, those under 30, they are much more willing than their elders to share salary information with one another, which also helps women. Joanne, you have been working in journalism and in the news business for decades. You were the former editor-in-chief of USA Today. You started at the Wall Street Journal, where you were there for 20 years. And so I'm curious, personally for you, what has been kind of your experience with regards to gender inequity in the workplace, good, bad, 
is there a personal story that really captures the essence of your experience with it? Because, you know, arguably you're a woman who reached the top, you know, of her career. And so along the way, what was that like? What were there? What were the ups and downs? Sure. So I would say that that um, one of the one of the motivating factors for writing a book geared at men was my experience at the Wall Street Journal, where I was surrounded primarily by men. When I joined the Wall Street Journal, it was the staff was almost entirely male, and they were just starting to hire a lot of women. And uh, by the time I left, it was about a third female, a third of the leaders of the organization were female. So we had certainly made a lot of progress. But um, and there were tons of women hired while I was there. But um, in my experience, you know, the Wall Street Journal that I joined was primarily male. My colleagues were primarily male. All of my mentors throughout my career were men and uh, my sources were men. So I, I had a really excellent experience in a very male dominated um, organization. And it, that's what actually led me to say when I started going to all of these women's, you know, as I rose up in leadership, I started going to more and more and being invited to these women's leadership uh, conferences and various other kinds of get togethers. And it was there that I realized that women talking to each other is half a conversation and that that only gets us to half a solution and that there's a lot of good guys out there. And I knew that because I'd worked with so many of them. That said, that said, um, you know, among my sources, certainly as a young reporter, I saw some horrendous behavior. I have written about how I was a 22 year old Wall Street Journal reporter. One of my first stories, I went to go interview a businessman. He locked the door and of his office and took off his clothes and stripped oh to his underwear. God. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And, and I didn't know what to do. And this is at a time, this was pre Anita Hill. And so at that time, pre Anita Hill, we didn't have the vocabulary for this. We didn't understand how to, um, to deal with this or talk about this um, because there was no vocab. The only vocabulary we had was rape. And I'm like, okay, if he doesn't rape me, I'm okay. So I bas- I took out my reporter's notebook and I interviewed him while he was in his underwear. <laughs> and then and then I got the hell out of there. And my boss, my boss actually, when I told him about it, he laughed. He thought it was a riot. He and his point was, ah, you're a tough, you're a tough cookie. You're gonna show them. And uh, it was like a mark of honor. Um, but of course, in this day and age, there is certainly vocabulary for that. And the boss, this in day and age, would probably call the police and that guy would certainly get fired. So, um, so, so times have moved on in a, in a positive direction and in that way, but at the same time, it is frustrating to see that the issues that I faced as a 22 year old, here we are, you know, three decades later. And, um, my daughter, who's a young woman in the workforce is facing the same issues. Others are facing the same issues. Um, the, I'm getting a lot, a lot of young women who are reading. That's what she said. And I hear from them and the stories they tell me are the same stories that happened to me decades earlier. And and that that's frustrating that we have not made more progress. Wow. And then, you know... <laughs> Ironically, there are people who like roll their eyes at things like diversity training and sexual harassment training. It's like, no, people, because crazy things are happening. (laughs) You may think it's, you know, you may, people may think, oh, well, we know not to take our clothes off when a journalist is interviewing us. (laughs) Yeah, you would think, you would think, but, and I don't, I don't think that that happens as much as it used to, but. But what I would say, and I looked deeply into um, diversity training and there was research done um, 
And the research shows very much what my seatmate in um, Des Moines on, on that plane showed, which is a lot of the diversity training has backfired. There was a, a research that showed um, 30 years worth of diversity training at more than 800 companies, and it analyzed them and found that for two groups, women and African-Americans of either gender, it, it not only did it fail to help them, but it actually hurt them. Companies that had this diversity training, it hurt their chances. And there were a variety of reasons for that that this Harvard researcher found. But one of them was, frankly, just that it alienated and pissed off the, the guys, primarily white men, who it was aimed at. And, and so the, it, it actually had the opposite effect of what it was supposed to do. The, the trainings that we have now, which are much more likely to be unconscious bias training, which is we all have these biases, women, men, whatever ethnicity you have, you know, sexuality, we all have them. And, and so the idea is it's a little bit more guilt-free because it's unconscious and you can't do anything about it, but you can recognize it and you can take steps to counteract it. And that, that's good. That's good for what it is. But the point that I make in that's what she said and that I cannot stress enough is how important it is for the leadership of any organization to actually own diversity and inclusion and own it and be responsible for it. Because I've seen way too many organizations where they offload it to the HR department. And I don't care how good your HR department is. And I will tell you, I have met some rock star diversity and inclusion professionals, but they do not have the power to change a company's culture. Only the leadership can do that. And I've had this argument, frankly, with leaders of organizations um, who have actually come back to me after a certain period of time and said, yeah, you were right. Like, like you know, a few hours of training and our HR department is not going to do it. We have to walk the walk. We have to model the behavior. And, we, and, and in fact, some companies have made changes. So, for example, some companies now for bonus eligible managers, they make diversity – like hiring, retaining, and promoting diverse candidates. That is part of the bonus system. So you, there is a financial incentive for you to do the right thing. Ah, well, there you go. Just, I think that's the solution for everything, right? Reward with money. <laughs> well, it's, I think the it, it is about, you're right in that it's about the incentives because we yeah. all we all act according to our incentives. And so if you are incentivized, whether by money, praise, whatever it is that, that, you're, that works for you, um, but you, you have to be incentivized. It, it's, you know, we've been talking about gender equality, um, not you and me, because we're too young. Um, even I'm too young for this, the, the, that the gender equality, uh, the, the, the Equal Pay Act was signed in 1963, right? Yeah. We're, we're talking more than half a century ago. And yet we still have this huge pay gap between men and women. So clearly talking about it is not sufficient. We really need some pretty dramatic action. And on that, actually, I want to mention one other thing because I love this. I've been talking to a lot of companies. I do a lot of corporate speaking and working with executive teams, which I'm really enjoying because you really can see change in action, but also I'm learning from them. So I, I, I came across a company, which I actually wrote about in the Wall Street Journal recently, this company called Humanize. It's in Boston. Paternity, and, right? Yes. Yeah, they mandating. decided they decided that they were going to have mandatory paternity leave. And the reason is because more companies are offering family leave to men and women, but the men don't 
take it mm-hmm. because the men get the message that if you do take it, it will hurt your careers. And of course, that message is not lost on the women who generally do take it and very often have to take it. So the women are getting the message that, yeah, it's going to hurt your career to have a kid. And so this company said, we're going to put everybody on an equal footing because anybody who has a kid must take that leave. And I I just think it's such a, it's a breakthrough idea. And as the company CEO said, we'd love this to be voluntary, but guys are not taking the leave. We have to force until it's voluntary, we're going to make them take it. Right. And as you pointed out in that article, you know, no big deal if he wants to take two months off to go travel or volunteer or write a book. But as soon as it's for his family, oh, watch the stigma. That's exactly right. Men take off time all the, all the time. And, and senior executive men, I mean, Boston Consulting Group gives guys like a year off partners, which are almost all men. They get a year off every five years. So, you know, they get a, a, a um, a sabbatical. And uh, Steve Jobs, if you look over you know, the last few years of his um, life, he was still running Apple. He took off 14 months for, for his health. Now, there was not a single person anywhere who said, oh, he's not serious about his job. Right? Right. <laughs> it doesn't. Whereas yeah. women can take off you know, eight weeks or, or 12 weeks, and suddenly it's a career killer for the rest of time. They've been set back for the rest of time. And you think about over the course of a 40-year career, which is what most people have these days, why in the world should take, taking off, you know, eight or 12 weeks set you back permanently? It's just, it makes absolutely no sense. And I, so I love this idea that let's have men take it off as well as women, and let's not penalize either one. Right. And to your point, I think, you know, you talked earlier about modeling, a company really owning this. And talk is cheap. Like this company can have this policy. It's only going to be effective when the leaders and the CEO, when he becomes a dad, that he actually does take the 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 time off because we also see companies where I've worked where oh they announce this amazing generous you know family leave policy but then when the CEO has her kids she's back at work after three weeks and that's right that's a hard one though you know like you're the CEO you have responsibilities can the business go on without you it's a, it's an interesting debate but at the end of the day it's optics too you're not really you're not walking the walk. Well, I think your point, though, is well taken in that we have to structure the workplace so that it is possible to have a family. We shouldn't be, you know, the, the, the modern workplace was built after World War II. It's all modeled on the military model, a hierarchical model that was built by men for men that had wives at home. And so we have to rethink the workplace so that it does work for men and for women. And it's taken us way too long to do that. Joanne, I would love to explore a little bit more about like your upbringing, your bit of your financial perspectives, having worked at the Wall Street Journal for so long as well. Uh, what would you say is your uh, greatest money lesson learned as a as a young girl growing up in New Brunswick, New Jersey, um, playing the was it the cello? I played the viola. The viola. I grew up in East Brunswick. Make, oh, make sure East we have Brunswick. our Brunswick. Wait, wait did yeah. I say did I say West Brunswick? Or? I think I think you said New Brunswick. New but Brunswick. That's okay. Yeah. So East Brunswick. I grew East up in East Brunswick, Brunswick, and I played the viola. And yes, my first book was actually a music memoir about my my music teacher. Um, it was an amazing. Um, teacher who just changed the lives of so many people. Um, but I guess I, you know, growing up, I mean, I, I, I learned the value of money, I think very quickly. 
um, uh, because, um, you know, my, my parents were children of the depression. And so they kind of had that, that mentality of you, 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 you know, you have to work really, really hard and be judicious about what you spend. And so I started working when I was, well, I started babysitting as soon as I was old enough, like uh, probably 12, but I, I got my first job as a, um, as a camp counselor when I was about 13 and, and I've, I've been working ever since. And, um, I feel like that is something a lot of kids now don't work because school puts so much pressure on them to do every single extracurricular and the grades and everything else. And I, I think it's really healthy for kids to start young and start taking financial responsibility at a younger age. I agree. It's a, it's an interesting um, sort of debate because I, I see it and my kids are too young now. They're not overscheduled yet, but I think that it's hard to find the time to do the, the workload at school and then come and, you know, be whatever, a waitress or a babysitter or do a paper route. Do those even exist anymore? Yeah, I don't even know. But I'll tell you one other thing. One thing that my parents did that I actually have passed along that I that I feel like was really helpful because when I, when I was growing up, I had friends who got, who got, you know, oh, if you get A's, we'll be, give you a dollar for every A or whatever. They, they got paid for grades, mm-hmm. basically. And my parents were never, ever, would never think of that. My parents were like, there's an expectation that you're going to do well in school. That's like, that's part of your job. That was like table stakes. And so um, there was, the expectation was there and there was not like a reward for doing well. It was an expectation. And I think that that actually ended up doing well by my sis. I have two sisters. And I think it, I think that was a good policy for all three of us, which we all passed down as well to our kids. Having worked at the journal for uh, 20 years over those years, did you develop, did you feel like your financial acumen sharpened uh, just because you were around so much content and information and sometimes, sometimes like advice around money? Do you feel like you learned a lot uh, about your personal finances there? Um, you know, for, uh, to, to certain extent, because you are very close to the news and you're very close to, you know, things like interest rates. So, you know, <laughs> like when's a good time to refinance, um, because you're just a little bit more attuned to it than the, than the average person. But, um, uh, but I would say, you know, most of the, re- the reporting at the wall street journal, really the focus was just on being a great reporter, um, as opposed to, being a money expert. It was really about being an expert in reporting, storytelling, accuracy, um, things that that have served all of us well. And if you look at what I call the Wall Street Journal diaspora, you know, I went on to um, be editor-in-chief of USA Today and of the USA Today Network overseeing uh, not just the national paper, but 109 local newspapers, over 3,000 journalists. Um, colleagues went on. We have a colleague who's running Time magazine, another who's running Reuters, um, so one who ran the New York Times. So uh, it was the, the, the training was actually mm-hmm. just about being, uh, you know, about the journalism and the, um, uh, the, uh, and the accuracy and the storytelling. Uh, which translates to any field. And that was one thing I really learned at the Wall Street Journal is it's it's all about being uh, it's all about the quality of the journalism. Right. Oh, that's outstanding. We have a sponsor for this show, Chase Slate. And together, as this is airing in November, this interview, we want to ask guests, what is the money advice that you are most thankful for receiving? Maybe something that you were 
you know, you learned in your professional career or when you were growing up or even recently, something that you're really thankful for learning? You know, I don't know. Remember when I learned this and I think I learned it from my dad, but it was it was about debt. It was about not taking on debt. Always pay your credit card every single month. Don't take you know, don't buy things on um, don't put things off. Like don't buy it unless you can afford it. And I think I, I can't remember exactly where that came from, but I'm virtually certain it was my father who um, was very careful about um, about financial literacy. And in fact, my I do remember my first week of my first permanent job, which was at the Wall Street Journal. I started right out of college. The very first week of my job, my my dad went out and set up an IRA for retirement for me. I'm like, I'm 22. Why do I need that? <laughs> and uh, he said, believe me, you're going to need it someday. And um, and so I, I think there's that, that, that um, responsibility of not biting off more than you can chew is the best advice I ever got. What was it like being a young reporter on a young reporter's salary in New York City? You had an IRA, so you're probably ahead of most of your peers at the time um, at 22. But where, where there, was there a struggle? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, yes, yes, yes. Oh, the I lived, so my roommate, I lived with a roommate on um, in Manhattan. And um, we lived in a one-bedroom apartment, and she was an investment banking trainee. So she got the bedroom because she could pay more. So... Uh, until I met my husband and got married, I lived in the living room. I slept in the living room and, um, I would, the very few times when I did go out to eat with anyone, I I would never order a drink or a dessert. Like I, I was like, you know, I'd look for the cheapest thing on the menu and not get anything else. And I drink water. I mean, I, I was, I scrimped and saved, um, which I didn't mind doing. I mean, it felt like that's what I was supposed to do. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I, I, uh, no, no desserts for Joanne. And I, and I believe me, I love dessert. Oh my God. So, sometime I do love dessert. And I will tell you sometimes what I would do is go out and only eat dessert. That would be, yeah, I'd skip the entree and just buy dessert. And that was fine. I, I used to do that in college too. So were you um, sleeping on a couch in the <laughs> living room or how was that set up? Um, so we moved my childhood single bed into a corner of the living room and, um, uh, and, and I slept there. Yeah. So <laughs> for several years, good times. I, which good times, I didn't mind. I had a, I loved my roommate. We had a great time together and by, you know, all of our friends were living in the same way. Um, and then, um, when I met my, my husband and, and, uh, before, you know, we moved in together and he was living, um, in a fourth floor walk up across from a, you know, a crack park basically. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, it's you, all do, relative. you have to, in the, in the, the, the building, our little, it was like a brownstone-ish building. And in the, um, the, the, there was a bar at the, at the bottom level and, and literally it's called, it was, it, they had a sign in the window of the bar that said all vodka drinks, $1 before 10 AM. <laughs> <laughs> There's a story. 
<laughs> we we actually never went into that bar, but uh, we lived on top of it, and uh, you know, many flights up. That was a uh, we, we were in good shape. A lot of walking. Man, upstairs. some good people yeah. watching at that bar at nine a.m. Uh, yeah, not really. <laughs> not really. Not really. Oh, that's so New York. That's a good story. Thank you for sharing that. And I think to your point, it's really helpful to have compadres, friends that are in the same financial boat, right? So you sleeping on a twin bed in your, in a living room is uh it's just it's just you know what you do it's just it's just temporary too so yeah it's what you do and you're you're you know you're just out of college and you you do what you have to do and um and your friends are in the same boat and and frankly it does you know as you work your way up it's much much more satisfying i think to feel like you know look what i've built like look where we're going and and to look ahead and uh, yeah, I, so I, I never, ever, ever felt like there was any hardship. Like I never, ever said, oh, what was me? I <laughs> live in a, in the corner of a living room. Like it just, I was super happy. I was hey, living you were, in Manhattan. Yeah, you were working at the Wall Street Journal. I was working at the Wall Street Journal. I was, I could not have been happier. I mean, it just didn't, it would never have occurred to me that, that, this was a hardship. Mm-hmm. Looking back, I'm like, yikes, that would be hard to live from <laughs> right now. Yeah. It would be hard to live that way. Or but, fun, um, depending on your roommate, I suppose. Uh, yeah, it's <laughs> as, very as, true. As you look ahead now, uh, after finishing this book and the conversations that you have been involved in, what, what is next for you? What, where do you think your next story is, whether it's a book or an article? What are you working on? So at the moment, actually, I just turned in as we speak um, an update for That's What She Said, um, which looks at everything that's happened over the last year. Um, and what I did in the back of That's What She Said, when you read the book, there's a cheat sheet there. You know, here's about a dozen things that you can do to close the gender gap right now. I have found as I go and talk to companies, first of all, as I said, I'm learning more, but I'm also understanding more of what the problems that organizations face are. So in the updated version, which will come out at the end of February, um, there will be two cheat sheets. One is what individuals can do right now to close the gender gap. And one is for organizations. Here are things other organizations are successfully implementing that you can implement too that will help to close the gap. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. I'm doing quite a bit of um, uh, working with corporations right now. And doing a lot of conferences, I'll be speaking in um, at the big women's conference in Massachusetts that's coming up in early December, and and um, speaking at um, doing a couple. I'm doing a Google Talks. I'm doing worse, you know, the Women in Hollywood conference. So there's a there's a lot of work to be done still, but um, I'm seeing just no diminution at all in the interest in in the. Um, it's it's only accelerating basically yes. the the interest in and and it's such a it's such an important mission so I feel really good about that. Well, put on your seatbelt because the closer we get to 2020, I think the more uh, heightened these conversations will get for good. I think it's really important that we continue them. And Joanne, thank you so much for your work. Oh well, thank you and thank you for helping spread the word and thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you so much. The book again is called That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. Joanne, best wishes and happy end of the year and going into the new year. And to you as well. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. 
Joanne's book again is called That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and What Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. Her website is joannelipman.com. She's on Twitter at Joanne Lipman. If you missed any of this, just head over to somoneypodcast.com. You can download the transcript as well as the audio. You can subscribe to our newsletter and also leave me a question for our Friday episodes about work, pay equity, your career, motherhood. I've lately been tackling everything and I really enjoy it. So keep those questions coming. And if you want to co-host with me for a Friday session, let me know there too as well. Thanks for tuning in everybody. And I hope your day is so money 